0: Has anybody ever heard of, or does anybody have, uh, what's called an InstaPot? Did anybody cook their beans in an InstaPot today? <laughs> InstaPot—that was that was one of those things. I, I I kept hearing people talk about these InstaPots or, or different, you know, calling it an Instant Pot or an InstaPot or or something like that. It's basically like a pressure cooker. Well, we had heard about this, and and uh, my my mom had bought an off-brand of one of those while she uh, is single and lives alone. And she figured out that all the stuff that she would cook in that would be big meals, so she said, here, and gave it to us. Well, as soon as we got that thing, man, we loved it. It was wonderful. Now, uh, those of y'all who have cooked with pressure cookers forever, just just indulge me for a minute, okay? This thing was great. I mean, we could put whatever we wanted to in it. We could put chicken or or meat or vegetables if, you know, that was all that you had or whatever. And you stick it in there, and, and in 30 minutes, I don't care what it was, in 30 minutes, that thing was done. You put the lid on it, and it would build up all of the heat and all the pressure inside of all of that kind of stuff, and then... Next thing you know, wonderfully, amazing, tasty things would come out of that thing. It was beautiful. Try it sometime. (laughs) But here was the problem. After a while, something went wrong with that thing. We used it so much, and maybe it was because it was an off-brand or or whatever, but we used that thing so much that after a while of it continually building the pressure and then releasing the pressure and building the pressure and releasing the pressure and doing that over and over again, however many cycles it went through, one of the seals, it didn't blow out, thankfully, (laughs) It it just gave out. It just, one of the seals quit sealing. Now it doesn't do anything. Now you can put the stuff in it and you can lock the lid just like you're supposed to and set the timer and all that kind of stuff, and it just sits there and kind of simmers. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It heats up just fine, but it no longer accomplishes the work that it was built to do. In other words, that poor thing, we had used it and abused it so much that that poor thing absolutely burned itself out, quit working. The fact is, whether we're talking about a pressure cooker or whether we're talking about a human being, heat and pressure are are necessary things in life. They can be good things. If you think about it, if you never had pressure in your life, probably wouldn't get much accomplished, would you? I, I know that in my life, if I didn't have pressure or sometimes a little bit of heat, I wouldn't get much accomplished. I think that's why God gives us spouses. Miranda's not in here, is she? (laughs) Praise God, Miranda's in children's church. Some one of y'all is going to tell her I said that, aren't you? (laughs) But seriously, I think that's why God gives us spouses. I think that's why God gives us bosses. And sometimes that's why God gives us preachers and teachers. That's why we have watches and calendars and appointments and schedules and all of those kinds of things and deadlines and goals and inspections and grades. That's why we have all of those things to kind of keep the temperature turned up just a little bit and give us enough pressure that will do the things that we're supposed to do. I think all of us need some pressure, need some heat to motivate us and to drive us and to spur us on. But the problem comes in when that heat or when that pressure becomes too prolonged or too intense for us to handle. And when that happens... When the pressure gets too much or too intense or lasts too long, then we run the risk of burning out. It's like what happened when we overused our pressure cooker. When when you run the risk of burning out, burnout might cause you to lose your fire and lose your desire and lose your drive and just sit there and stew. You ever know anybody like that? Now here's the other extreme. The other extreme is even worse, I think, and that's when the pressure builds to such a point that you that you explode. You remember the Boston Marathon bombings a couple of years ago? You remember what those bombs were made out of? They were made out of pressure cookers, weren't they? But what happened with those pressure cookers was they put explosives inside of those that would that would cause way too much pressure than those things can handle. And when it caused way too much pressure for them to handle, it caused them to explode and it would send shrapnel all throughout the people who were around those pressure cookers. There are all kinds of things that can cause pressure in your life. And as we're talking about this, I'm sure many of you are thinking about the things in your life that stir up pressure, that cause pressure in your life. Caring for an elderly loved one for a long period of time, that can cause pressure in your life. Trying to balance school and work and family and life and all of those things, trying to juggle all of those things, that can cause pressure in your life, can't it? The stress of Insurance and light bills and loan payments and putting food on the table and all the bill collectors, that can cause pressure in life, can it? Feelings of inadequacy, feelings of failure that come from raising kids in this crazy world that we live in, that can cause stress, that can cause pressure, can't it? There are all kinds of things in life that can build pressure in our lives. And each of us have different sources of pressure that build up in our lives. We have different sources of stress in our lives. Nobody is immune from that. But the key is, is learning how to deal with the pressure in such a way that it doesn't cause us on one hand to explode and send shrapnel into all those around us or cause burnout and just cause us to simmer and not accomplish anything. The key is learning how to deal with it so neither one of those extremes happen. Yes, stress and pressure is is a normal part of life. Nobody's immune from that. Not even the Apostle Paul was immune from pressure and stress in life. The reality is if you have pressure and stress in your life, and you do, you're at risk for burnout. From what we've seen in our journey so far, Paul had more than his share of stress. If anybody was at risk for burnout, the apostle Paul was at tremendous risk for burnout. Even with all of his faith, even with all of the, all of the blessings, even with all of the grace that Paul experienced, even with all of the, all of the ministry success that he had, even with all of that, even with his, with his faithful obedience, Paul was at risk for burnout. Even with all of his trust and reliance on the Lord, Paul was seriously at risk for burnout. That's why he had to deal with it really before it happened. In our passage this morning, you know, sometimes we look for very practical, we w- we want to get very practical things out of uh, out of the the sermons. Well, this morning you're going to get very practical things. We're going to see four very practical steps to beat burnout. So the first question you got to ask yourself is are you stressed? And I think we'd all give a hearty amen to that. Are you stressed? Is your life starting to spin out of control? Are you feeling like you might just explode? Or have you completely lost your drive to do anything? Well, if that's you, then the first thing that you need to do to beat burnout, (coughs) are you ready for this, is cut your hair. First thing you need to do is cut your hair. What kind of a fundamentalist preacher is this telling me I need to get a haircut? (laughs) Or like my dad told me when I was growing up, boy, you need to get a haircut and get a real job. <laughs> but The first thing you need to do to, to beat burnout in your life is get a haircut. Look at verse 18 of chapter 18 again. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila at Cancrea, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. I just find it really odd as you're reading through this this historical narrative of Acts, the one that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write. As you read through this, you don't find a whole lot of personal little details about Paul's life as he was going through these missionary journeys. You don't find where he'd stop for. You know, fast food or he'd stop for these different, you don't find with the little personal details of what was going on, particular things that was going on in his life. So it's really odd when you come across something here that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes time in God's word to identify the fact that Paul stopped at the barber. He stopped to get a haircut. So you got to ask yourself, why, why is that included? Uh, Luke didn't include that to tell us that, you know, this is the best barber around. He didn't include it as a plug. No, he included it, not so much for the haircut itself, but just to tell us what this haircut symbolized. Verse 18 says that Paul was under a vow. That meant that he had placed himself under what was called a Nazarite vow. The, the Jewish readers of Acts in the first century, they would have immediately understood what was being talked about here. We, we have to kind of dig a little bit deeper. But it means that Paul was under what was called a Nazarite vow. Now, if you're really curious and you, you just really want to study, take this home as homework as after your nap, after the bean dinner and go back to Numbers chapter six and you can find everything that you need to know about a Nazarite vow. But at its core, what a Nazarite vow was, was a specific time of focused, intense devotion to God. It was a time when a person would make a vow and do certain things either out of extreme thankfulness for some deliverance that the Lord had brought them through, or as an extreme form of petition for the Lord, something that they were asking the Lord to do. That was what this Nazarite vow was. It was kind of like a more visible, devoted form of what we would use fasting, what we would do as fasting. As a matter of fact, fasting was part of taking a Nazarite vow. They would fast, the person under the vow would fast from anything having to do with grapes. So they couldn't eat grapes, they couldn't eat raisins, they couldn't eat chocolate covered raisins. I don't know that they had them, but if they had them, they couldn't eat chocolate covered raisins, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't eat anything to do with grapes or raisins, they couldn't have vinegar, they couldn't have grape juice, they couldn't have wine. So any grape product they would abstain from as long as they were under the vow. And also the, now that was kind of a behind the scenes thing, you wouldn't, you know, necessarily go around announcing that you were abstaining from grapes. But there was an external thing as well. As long as a person was under this Nazarite vow, they wouldn't cut their hair. It would allow their hair to grow the whole time. Now, as you read through Scripture, you can see some instances of some folks that that were under a Nazarite vow from birth. Now, that was a rarity, But we see that Samson was under a Nazarite vow from birth. We also see that John the Baptist was under a Nazarite vow from birth. That was a rarity. Most of the time, there would be a very limited period, 30 days, 60 days, something like that. They were supposed to keep that vow for however long that they had committed to make that vow. Now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as Luke writes this, he doesn't bother to tell us any of the details of Paul's Nazarite vow. I don't know why. We can ask when we get to heaven. But he doesn't give us any of the details about how long it was or what his vow was for, if it was for uh, thankfulness for what God had brought him through in Corinth, or whether it was... And lasted the whole time that he was in Corinth, praying about the things that he had been going through in his life, praying that God would, would do so. We don't know any of that. We don't know how long it was for. We don't know any of that. But we do know what Paul had been going through in Corinth. We've talked about that over the last couple of weeks. Remember what Paul had been through in Corinth. His letter to 1 Corinthians says that when he came to Corinth, he came to them in fear and weakness and trembling. He he had experienced things that he hadn't experienced up to this point in in, in his ministry. When he got to Corinth, he was friendless, he was homeless, he was broke, he was alone, he was discouraged to the point that he was in weakness and fear and trembling. You could say, if you wanted to draw, just paint a picture in your mind of what Paul was going through, you might want to picture his time, at least initially in Corinth, that he was in a foxhole. You ever seen the old war movies and you, you see the guy in the foxhole and the bullets are coming from all around and he's just kind of hunched down and, and can't, and he's hiding from everything? Well, you know about foxholes, right? You hear about the stories about what people tend to do in the trenches or in the foxholes. Uh, They tend to make promises. That's why we have a a saying. We call them foxhole promises, right? And you can just picture that when Paul was in this foxhole of Corinth, he was giving a vow to the Lord. You know, our foxhole promises tend to be things like, well, God, if you get me out of this mess, God, I'll serve you forever forever. God, if you get me over this sickness, I'll 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 live my I'll be in church every week. Lord, if you get me out of these financial problems, (laughs) Lord, I'll I'll, I'll tithe. Right? None of you have ever made those foxhole promises, have you? I tell you what, I have. I have. During some of the darkest times of my life, I've made those kind of promises. Lord, if you just deliver me from this, I'll, whatever the promise is. When Paul was leaving Corinth, the first thing that he did was get a haircut. He got a haircut because he was acknowledging the vows that he had previously made to the Lord. Like I said, we don't know the nature of those vows, but he had made a vow to the Lord. And he was acknowledging, by getting the haircut, he was acknowledging that he had previously made these promises to the Lord. Listen to me. When you've made those kinds of vows to the Lord in the past, it's important that you acknowledge that. It's important that you acknowledge your vows to the Lord. But wait a minute. I didn't keep up my end of the bargain. (laughs) You still need to acknowledge it. See, here's the reality is none of us have faithfully kept up our end of the bargain, have we? That's why we depend and rely and cry out for and desperately need God's grace. Because we can't keep the vows that we make. So when we acknowledge those vows that we've made before the Lord and we acknowledge, God, I didn't hold up my end of the bargain like I should have. Oh, God, I'm thankful for your grace that you brought me through. Oh, God, I'm so thankful for what you did. It's a perfect time to remind yourself that no matter how spun up and how stressed you get with all the things of life, God's always in control. God's in control. He loves you, and he will bring you through it. Beat burnout by acknowledging your foxhole promises. Beat burnout by leaning into God's grace. In other words, cut your hair. Cut your hair. Acknowledge those vows. Second thing you need to do to beat burnout is leave them there. Cut your hair and then leave them there. Look at verses 19 through 21. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. The they, he's already mentioned, is Priscilla and Aquila. So they came there with him, and then verse 19, they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. He left Priscilla and Aquila there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail. From Ephesus. All right. In your bulletin, there's a map in there. We've tried to have a map in there just about every week. So you can follow along with this part of the journey on that map that's inside your bulletin. When it came time for Paul to leave after his time in Corinth, he he headed to this port city of Cancria. And it was at Cancria that he ran into the barbershop and got his hair cut. After he got his hair cut, then he got into a boat and he sailed to a city called Ephesus. Ephesus was in a place called, an area called Asia Minor. Now if you've been with us for a while, if you've been with us since the beginning of at least this second missionary journey, Asia Minor rings a bell, should ring a bell in your mind. You remember that at the very beginning, about three years ago, at the very beginning of this First missionary journey, not too long after he'd left his home church at Antioch, he was heading through and he really wanted to go to Asia Minor. Paul and the folks that was with him really wanted to go to Asia. But you remember what happened? The Holy Spirit said, no. No. The Holy Spirit forbid them to go into Asia. So then he went on and went to all the different places, and here it is about three years later, and Paul finally gets the opportunity to go to the place that he wanted to go in the beginning. But by now, three years later, Paul was done. He was emotionally done. After Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica and Athens and Corinth, he was fried, Three years of very intense ministry had left him on the edge of mental and emotional and physical burnout. So even when he was about to see his dream of being in Ephesus, when he was about to see that fulfilled, even when he got there, he didn't stay long. But how in the world could he just leave? I mean, this was, this was Ephesus. This, he hadn't been there before. The gospel really needed to be proclaimed in this place. Later on, as we look at Ephesus, once we begin the third missionary journey, we're going to see how desperately in need of Jesus this place, Ephesus, was. And it wasn't like Paul walked in there the first time and, and was blind to that. He knew how desperately they needed Jesus. He knew that they needed the gospel proclaimed. He knew that they needed A church planted, and Paul was called to proclaim the gospel and plant churches. Ephesus needed exactly what Paul was called to do, so he left. He left. How in the world could he do that? The only way he could do that is because he trusted the work to others. Silas and Timothy weren't with him, but Priscilla and Aquila were. And he had just spent probably about two years in Corinth investing in Priscilla and Aquila and discipling them and working alongside them. And now it was time to trust them, to trust them to do the work. Here's the reality. If you're going to be burnout, then you're going to have to trust others to do the work. In the business world, they call it delegation. In the church world, we call it discipleship. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be making disciples. Paul trusted Priscilla and Aquila with the initial ministry in Ephesus, and he trusted them completely. He trusted them to the point where he could get in a ship and go home and trust them there. See, when we think that everything depends on us, and that's going to lead to burnout. When you think that unless I do it and it's not going to get done, that's going to lead to burnout. When you're thinking that, you know, I'm the only one that really cares enough to do the things right, nobody's going to do it right like I do. That's going to lead to burnout. When you don't train others, when you don't bring others alongside you, when you don't train them, and then trust them to do the work, that'll lead to burnout. Now, are they going to mess up sometimes? Are they going to do it as well as you do? Maybe. Maybe not. Listen to me. God is the one who's in control. You're not. So since God is the one who's in control, since God is the one who has all the control, then it's okay to give somebody else some of yours. Amen? It's okay to do like Paul. And after spending a time of training and discipleship, then he left them there. Left them there. You know, people... All the time will tell you, when you do a job and you do it well, people all the time will tell you, man, you're just indispensable. When people tell you you're indispensable, don't believe it. Because you're not. None of us are indispensable. The folks at Ephesus, they desperately wanted Paul to stay. Paul, you're indispensable. we got to have you, Paul. And what did he do? He declined. He declined. So if you're going to beat burnout, sometimes you need to decline and set sail. If you want to beat burnout, cut your hair and leave them there. And after you do that, you need to go home and refresh. Look at verse 22. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, then went down to Antioch. One of the things I love about Paul's missionary journeys, and we're through this second cycle, beginning the third cycle, Lord willing, next week. One of the things I love about these missionary journeys is how that Paul always stayed connected to his sending church, to his home church at Antioch. And that's how you can follow. You can always follow on these maps. You can follow. He makes a loop. He starts off at Antioch, and then he ends up back at his home church at Antioch. The church at Antioch was the one who sent him on mission in the first place. And now as we finish up this second missionary journey, we find him there again. He's heading back to his home church for a time of renewal, for a time of refreshment. Sometimes we just got to rest, don't we? Sometimes, I mean, the bottom line is sometimes we just got to rest. And there is no place better to rest than resting with our church family. Amen? You know, I know know sometimes we're like, you get through a busy week and you're going, oh, and all that stuff. And now I've got to go to church. No. The time that we come together, this is our time of rest and refreshment. See, when I talk about rest, I'm not necessarily talking about propping your feet up and not doing anything, although that's important. Sometimes, after the bean dinner, I'm going to be doing that at the house. You guarantee that with a football game on. <laughs> so that's important to do sometimes, but that's not what I'm talking about by our need for rest. What I'm talking about is being able to be in an environment where you can let your guard down. Being able to be in an environment where you can be real with people. Being in an, env- an environment where you're able to be vulnerable. Oh, I don't like that word, do you? But we need it. We need it talking about being spiritually and emotionally refreshed. I'm talking about being trained and equipped and challenged and fed and supported. I'm talking about sanctuary. You know, there's, I've told you this before, and you're probably sick of me hearing it, but I love what we continue to call this room that we're gathered in here this morning. We continue to call this room Sanctuary. Now there are all different churches that call, call them by all different kinds of names, and it's not a real popular thing to call it sanctuary anymore. People will call it, you know, the auditorium or the uh, the the worship center or something like that, and that's fine. And I'm not fussing at them. That's that's fine. Um, but I, I love the meaning of the word sanctuary. I love reminding ourselves of that. Because isn't that what we gather here for? God has given us this place to gather in peace for just a short time each week. Think about all the hours of the week and all the chaos and all the stuff and all the stuff that comes at us from 411 different directions during the week. And God gives us this place where we can sit peacefully. All the craziness of this world, all the craziness of our lives, and all the stress and all the stuff, all the junk is left outside the door for just a precious few moments each week. All the things that threaten to burn us out are left outside those doors. In here, we have peace. In here, we have peace to love each other well. In here, we have peace to be refreshed by the singing, by by the singing. Refreshed by being able to see, sing, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Refreshed by hearing the word proclaimed. Refreshed by seeing the demonstration of the gospel. Being refreshed by that. Peace to preach and pray and sing and serve and give and go. As a believer, when you join this church, we covenant with each other as a family. That means that when you're here, you're home. You're home. If you want to have a hope of beating burnout, you need to come home at every opportunity and be refreshed. But here's the reality the thing about coming home is you can't stay here forever. Because if you stay here forever, you're not going to burn out, but you'll rust out. And rusting out is just as bad as burning out. So after you've cut your hair, after you've left them there, after you've come home to refresh, after all of those, you've got to get back to work. That's what Paul did in verse 23. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next, through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. You know, after Paul remembered his foxhole promises and he leaned hard into God's grace, after he trained up Priscilla and Aquila and turned the ministry in Ephesus over to them, after he spent time being refreshed and renewed by his church family in Antioch, after all of that, Paul was ready. He was refreshed. He was recharged. The pressure had let off to the point that he was ready to be valuable and to move forward. He was ready to jump back in that fire and get to work doing what he was called to do. Get back to work making and strengthening disciples. Listen to me. A good alternative to burning out is not rusting out. That's not a good alternative because both end up in the same place. Whether you burn out or whether you rust out, the bottom line is you're out. And out is not a good place to be. As long as you have breath in your lungs, as long as I have breath in my lungs, God has called us to accomplish the mission that he's called us and that he's created us to do. He's created you and he's called you to make and to strengthen disciples of Christ Jesus. In other words, you are new lives bringing new life to our neighbors and the nations. That's what he's called you to do. So take your rest when you need to do what you need to do to keep from burning out. And once you've rested and recovered enough to catch your breath, then get back in the game. Now, before we finish, I want to tell you something. This has been a very practical sermon. This has been like, you know, a how to list. Here's four things. Bam, 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 bam. Just check them off, right? Check them off and we're not going to suffer burnout. Burnout. Uh, There's no doubt that that's true, but it's also dangerous. Anytime that we walk away from a message thinking that we have a checklist to accomplish the thing, the things that we need to do to do X, it can be a dangerous thing. If you take these four steps and you try to apply them in isolation, if you try to apply them in your own strength, then all that you're going to do is, look, I've got 40, 11 different things in my life that are giving me stress and now the preacher gave me four more things. It's just going to add to the stress that you already have. Because here's the reality. You can't fix your burnout by yourself. You can't fix your stress by yourself. You can't fix your pressure and your anxiety by yourself. That's exactly what the Pharisees were trying to do in Jesus' day with how they treated the Sabbath. You remember how the Pharisees treated the Old Testament Sabbath laws? They took God's beautiful provision of rest. God made the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. He gave them this beautiful provision of rest, and the Pharisees turned that into a legalistic checklist. And they put people in bondage because of that. The very thing that God had designed to free them from stress and anxiety was actually causing them to burn out. The four things that we've seen in this passage aren't supposed to be a legalistic checklist. They're helpful. They're helpful, but only if you first find your rest in Jesus. Jesus. See, you and I only have one true source of rest, and that's Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. What is that Sabbath rest? How how do you get that kind of Sabbath rest that it's talking about there? Well, Jesus told us. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus told us, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That, that word that Jesus used there, that word that's translated labor, it carries the idea of being worn out carries the idea of being weary even to the point you're carrying such a burden that, that you're weary even to the point of just, just passing out. The word that's translated heavy laden there, it, it was a word that was used in shipping. And it carries the idea of a ship that has been overloaded to the point that it's just about to sink below the waterline put those two words together, labor and heavy laden, I think you got a pretty good definition or a pretty good picture of burnout, don't you? Are you worn out? Are you weary? Are you overloaded to the point where you think that if somebody puts even a feather on top of what I'm already doing, I'm just going to drown? You feel like you can't do it anymore? Are you ready to quit under the weight? These four steps that we talked about earlier, they can definitely help you. They certainly helped Paul, but the only way that they were able to help Paul is because Paul was first resting in Jesus. Are you resting in Jesus this morning? Do you trust that Jesus has paid for your sins and there's nothing that you can do to work those sins off or to somehow earn his Love and His affection and His salvation? Do you trust that Jesus paid for your sins, not just your past sins, not just your present sins, but your future sins as well? Do you realize that you are completely and totally secure in Him? That once you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Master and Savior, there is nothing that you can possibly do to earn His love or to lose His love. Because he paid for it in full with his blood on Calvary. Are you resting in that? Are you resting in the fact that as Philippians 1, six says, that when Jesus starts a work in you, he's going to finish what he starts. See, that's a promise. God is faithful to keep his promises. Are you resting in that? Are you somehow thinking and i got to do this 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 and if i don't then god's not going to love me anymore there's no rest in that are you resting in the fact that jesus always 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 finishes what he starts are you resting in the fact that everything that you go through as a child of god everything that you go through as a child of God is under the authority and the control of God to the point that He has promised that whatever you are going through is purposely designed for your good and for His glory. Are you resting in that? See, you can only do that if you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Master and Savior. If you've never done that, And before you even think about these other four things, I'm begging you this morning to trust Jesus and find your rest in Him. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy for us to get caught up in all the um, chaos and anxiety and strife and, and busyness and all of those things, and it's so easy for us to just bounce around this world frazzled continually. Lord, our schedules seem to be so uh, so packed with activities and uh, things that, that even seem like necessities. Father, it's so easy to get so packed up in that uh, that we forget that you have given us rest so Lord I first I want to thank you for this these little moments that you give us these little moments of sanctuary that you give us gathered uh, singing in worship gathered worshiping around your word Father, we so desperately need that and I, I thank you so much for providing that for us Father, help us to never forget <laughs> or to get so messed up in our head that we think that we're too busy to take advantage of the rest that you've provided for us. So, Father, I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you most of all for the rest that you've given us in Jesus. Resting from trying to save ourselves by our works. Resting from trying to somehow have enough righteousness to earn our way to you. Resting in the fact that when you save us, you'll never let us go. Now, Father, if there's one here this morning who's not experienced that rest in Christ, Lord, I'd ask that today would be the day of their salvation. Father, that they would bow before you as King and Master and Lord of all. Bow before you as completely in control of all and submit to you as their Sabbath rest. Father, if there's any here who have trusted Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior, but are living in disobedience, who are running from you, who are trusting in their own works, or who are outside of a covenant relationship in a in a local body of believers. Lord I'd ask that you would that your spirit would show them right now. Show them the direction that they need to go. Father, as your spirit shows them, I'd ask that you wouldn't leave them alone until they Submit to your will. Father, for the rest of us, Father, may we find our rest in you. In Jesus' name.